Welcome to week four. So you made it. You're done. Uh, thank you guys so much for jumping in to the Philippian study this summer, uh, for waking up early. Uh, for those of you, maybe your, your wife or significant other are in the, the women's study. So if you got kids, thank you for even tonight uh, staying home. And you don't babysit your own kids. That's called parenting. So Thanks for being a parent and <laughs> making it so your wife can go tonight or something. But um, it's been really encouraging to me, even though, you know, there's some of us in this room, there's a lot of guys who have been following along online. And so I've gotten pictures from, uh, from a few people with, or a few wives actually, like taking a picture of their husband, like on a Zoom call, you know, so a bunch of guys up on the screen, they're going through it. So uh, lest you feel like this is a smaller group than it is, it's, it's actually not. Uh, you're joined by a lot of guys in our church. And, and I love seeing the men in our church kind of like set the pace, step forward, and, uh, and really dive in to the Word of God. So uh, thank you for leading the way in that. Uh, we don't take that lightly uh, at all here. So um, thank you guys so much. But so week four, chapter four, we're in the home stretch. Um, this is the final chapter in Philippians. And if you remember back to the introductory video, all the way at the beginning, I know it feels like it was forever ago, uh, Sarah and I talked about how Philippians is, is an interesting book in the sense that this is a really, really like intimate letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, that these, were, uh, these weren't just people that, you know, Paul... Paul was writing to to like rebuke them on something. You know, you read Galatians and it starts off very differently than Philippians, right? And uh, the Philippians had a very special place uh, in Paul's heart because they were a church that Paul, you know, founded, uh, established, and this is also a church that continued to support Paul along the way. And so through thick and thin, the Philippian church was really the wind in like the wind in the sails of Paul as he. Uh, went through his ministry, and we all, we know that Paul's ministry was not an easy one. So to have the church in Philippi in his back pocket, he knows he has his prayers and their support, is a huge thing for Paul. And he reemphasizes this as we begin chapter 4. So chapter 4, verse 1, he says, So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, my dearly loved, and if he just stacks on the adjectives, right? Dearly loved, long for, my joy, my crown. These aren't people that he's just tolerating. These aren't people that he's just like, well, you're part of my ministry, so I have to love you. It's like, no, these are genuine friends. Like, I, I love you, I long for you. I, it, it, it would be kind of like us saying, I love you and I like you. Like, I love you and I also want to be with you. I mean, we have those family members where it's like, I love them, but I'd rather spend time with someone else, you know, <laughs> or, or maybe those friends or whatever. That's not the case here with Paul. And he kind of continues to emphasize it even more when he says, my joy and my crown. And I have to imagine that when he calls the church in Philippi his crown, what he, what he possibly has in mind is like the Olympic Games, you know, because for, for us, we're like, you get a gold medal. For them, you would get a crown. You get a crown, it was usually of, of olive branches kind of woven together in a crown, a sign of victory, a sign that you had finished the race, you completed the course, you have, you've won the games, and now you've received a crown. And what Paul is saying to the church in Philippi is that you, you're essentially uh, my trophy of God's grace. The grace that God has shown me through you is, is a tremendous gift, and it's a prize that I highly highly value. It was a sign of, of, of their great victory. And, um, and I think this connects well. Uh, so 
it's easy for us as we walk through a book of the Bible like this, where we're kind of taking one chapter at a week, it's, if you're anything like me, it's incredibly easy to get segmented in how I think through the different parts of the book. But for Paul, this was a letter. They would have read this all at the same time. And so when he calls the Philippian church his joy and crown uh, in referring to a prize, I have to believe that they think back just to the chapter earlier in chapter 3, verse 14, where Paul talks about, let's see this here, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. And he talks about forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, toward the prize as he pursues the prize that is promised by him in Christ, to him in Christ. And so as Paul begins chapter 4, and he says, My dearly loved, dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and my crown, in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. And you, we have to ask, in what manner? Well, I have to believe that he's referring back to chapter 3, verse 14. Chapter 3, as he talks through, like the way in which he's running the race, the way in which he's pursuing after the Lord, forgetting what's behind and focusing on what's ahead. That's what he says in, in verse 19 of chapter 3. Their end is, the, is, the, is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. And here's the key. They are focused on earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what is the secret to standing firm in the faith. What is the secret to standing firm on shifting ground? It's to stay focused on Jesus Christ. It sounds easy. It's much more difficult to actually do. To stay focused. They are focused on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our true citizenship, the, for, for a believer, your primary citizenship is a heavenly one. Not as an American, not as if you're from somewhere else, your primary citizenship is in heaven. And so we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. And so men, when it seems like the world is falling apart, and it, it does seem like the world is falling apart, it, should it be any surprise though? We've already been told this, like the world will fall apart. So if it's on its way to falling apart, that shouldn't at least be a surprise to us. That doesn't make it any easier necessarily in the moment, but we certainly see the end. We stand firm by living Colossians 3.2, if you remember what Paul says in Colossians 3.2, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So men, don't ever underestimate the danger of distraction. The danger of distraction. So I'm on a walk with, uh, we, with Sarah, Judah, Naomi, Judah's four, and this was two days ago, and we're walking Home from the park, Judah's still learning how to ride his bike, so he's got training wheels, so we can walk about as fast as he can ride his bike, right? Um, the, the constant battle with Judah is, bud, always look in the direction you're going. Like, you're, <laughs> he's four, okay? Like, he doesn't have the coordination to be able to look one direction and walk a different one. And not only that, none of us do in reality, you know, we don't have eyes in the back of our heads. And so we're constantly telling him like, look in the direction you're going. Well, as he's riding his bike, uh, he's kind of like right in front of us and he turns to look back at us to say something and immediately falls over. Starts crying, skins up his knee, 
all that stuff, right? And if you got teenagers, maybe you're teaching them to drive and you, you kind of want them to keep their eyes on the road, right? Keep your hands on the wheel, your eyes on the road. Like it's because we know this to be true. Like we, are, we will go the direction that we're looking, right? If you're, if, you're, if you're kind of looking at the car accident on the other side you know, of the road, you, you will find your car to start drifting. Like we will always go in the direction that we're looking. And what Paul is saying is the way that you stand firm in your faith is pay close attention to what you're focusing on. Pay close attention to what you're fixing your eyes on. Guys, what do you spend a majority of your time giving attention to? giving your focus to? What do you constantly fill your mind with? What do you constantly fix your eyes on? Are you more aware every morning of the daily news than you are of what God has said? Are you more aware of what the news has said or what God has said? I'm not saying to be unaware of what's happening in our world. What I am saying is if you're more aware of what's happening in our world, than what God has said, then it's likely that you're fixing your eyes on the wrong thing. Stand firm, fix your eyes on the Lord and live with an eternal mindset, right? Because when you truly believe that, that this world is not all that there is, it'll change the way that you live in this world. This world is not all that there is. It will change the way you see the things of this world and it'll change the way that you see your life in this world. <clears throat> So that's verse one. We'll, we'll go a little quicker here. So chapter four, verse two. I urge Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are in the book of life. So seemingly out of nowhere, uh, Paul addresses these two women that are in the church that seem to have a disagreement about something that is apparently big enough for Paul to choose to address in a letter to the whole church, right? Like that would, that would feel a little weird, um, but, but we can make some observations about this, okay? So it seems as though Paul wouldn't have addressed the problem to these two women if the whole church weren't already aware of it. So it it would seem as though this issue, we don't know what the main issue was between these two ladies, but it would seem as though the problem was a big enough problem that as he even kind of vaguely refers to it in the letter that everyone who was reading it would have been like, yeah, I know about that. Yeah, I've heard about that. I've, I've, I've seen them, you know. Like it was a big enough issue to be known by the whole church. And so uh, Paul chooses to address it in front of the whole church. Like he addresses public problems publicly and then also where to address private problems privately. It seems as though Paul is following that, that kind of like line of <laughs> conflict resolution. You know? Now there, there becomes an issue here when we try to address private problems publicly and only address public problems privately. And, and, and there, there's a couple problems when you start to do that, right? If you address private problems publicly, you begin to pull in people who the, the problem isn't their problem. And now you've just given like a, something to talk about. It's something to gossip about. You know, a lot of people who can't do anything about the situation are now involved or weren't even aware of the situation. When you choose to address public problems privately, what you also do is you, you miss the opportunity, you miss the obligation as a leader to be able to also 
teach and guide the people who have been aware of the problem. It's, it's kind of like one of the things that, that my wife and I always try to do is that if, if we are having an argument or a disagreement and it's, it's in like a common space in our house and the kids are around, what we'll always do is we'll always try to resolve that problem or disagreement also in front of the kids. Because our private problem has become public in our home and if we don't resolve that now publicly, our kids don't actually know how that resolved. If we fight in front of them and then, and then go figure it out in the bedroom and get it like figured out and then come back out and act like everything's fine, they have no idea what happened. We haven't modeled for them how to resolve conflict. They don't know how the issue landed. Like, and they're four and seven and, and on, they can understand more than you would imagine. So we try to pull them in when it's appropriate into the conflict that we're having if they've seen it and help them see how that's been resolved. So as a general rule, even as what we see Paul doing here with these two women, address public problems publicly, private problems privately. So we can assume that the church body would have already known about it. That's why Paul is addressing it. Um, and we can also see, notice that Paul doesn't take sides. He doesn't say, hey, Yodia, or yeah, Yodia, how do you, you know, knock it off. You're clearly wrong here. Like you're, you're, you're going against what Christ has taught us. You're going against what we see in the scriptures. He doesn't, he doesn't say that to either one of the women which Paul has no problem calling people out on their issues, right? And so you would think that if there were clearly one person who were in the right or in the wrong, Paul would have addressed that publicly as well to help the church along in this conflict. And so it, that, this leads me to believe that the problem that these women were having, that the thing that they were fighting about, whatever it was, it wasn't something on the level of morality. It wasn't something on the level of biblical instruction, but was something on the level of preference. Which hopefully, guys, we have a category in our minds where that can be the case. Like where we can disagree with somebody and it can not be over something that's morally right or wrong, but a matter of preference. Like that, that, that needs to be a category, because if, Again, if you're anything like me, I, I can, my preferences can, can start to become convictions if I'm not careful. And I can begin to, to justify and fight for them as though they were biblical truth. When at the end of the day, it's really just a preference. It's really just something that I prefer. It's really just something that, that I believe. It's, it's, it's something philosophically I might like to you know, adhere to, but I can't go to scripture to really back it up. And so we ought to have categories where you can disagree with someone, and that doesn't mean that you're right, or that they're wrong, or that you're wrong, or they're right, but you're just different. It's kind of like if you've ever seen the movie Inside Out. Anyone ever seen that? Man, if you haven't seen Inside Out, it's Pixar. Just watch, watch a Pixar movie, man up by yourself, that's fine. There's a scene where, uh, where these two characters, Joy, who is the personification of Joy, and then the imaginary friend, Bing Bong, uh, he's part dolphin, part cotton candy, uh, where they're on the train of thought. Okay, man, you really should have to see this to maybe get this. But uh, they're, they're on something called the train of thought, and they're on their way back to, uh, to headquarters. And there's a box. There's two boxes that get knocked over. And when they get knocked over, you see these, these kind of like cards fall out, and it says facts and opinions. And they get all mixed up. 
And Bing Bong, being kind of an idiot imaginary friend, is like, oh, it doesn't matter. Just put them all back. Happens all the time. Like, facts and opinions getting mixed together. And it's like, what do you do? You know, so often, I want to equate my opinions with objective facts. That's not to say there isn't objective truth. That's not to say there aren't facts that we should fight for. But if, if we're being honest, there's something within, within us, within me, that wants to act as though all my opinions are facts and, and create unnecessary division within the body. Unnecessary division when it comes to preferences. Unnecessary division when it comes to leadership. Unnecessary division when it comes to, to philosophy of doing this or that. And apparently this division was so deep. I think, I think this must be the kind of division that these two women were experiencing. It was likely a division of preferences that was becoming so deep that it was threatening to divide the church in Philippi. And so what Paul does is he, is he asks a third party within that church to come in and resolve these differences. We see this right here in verse 3. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, whoever this is, we don't know who this is, true partner to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side. This word help, uh, we, we think... When, when, we hear, when we hear the word help, we kind of think like, just kind of like come alongside, like gently come alongside. The actual word for this has, has, a, has more, of a, uh, more of a forceful connotation to it. it. It's the same word that's used for catch, like if you're fishing. Like, like go take your hook, stick it in them, and pull it a direction they aren't naturally going. Pull, it in, pull them in a direction that they aren't wanting to go, that, that you don't see them going. Like, bring them back. Like, apprehend. That's, that's the word. Like, don't just help these women. Like, apprehend them. Go grab them by the shoulders and say, for the sake of the glory of Christ and the unity of the church, we need to come together. Can I go with you and help you to reconcile these differences that you have? It's threatening the unity of the body. Paul calls in a third party. At times, we need, we need help. If there's division that we have with somebody else, or we need to be that person who when we see a division of preferences, a division of opinions that's really beginning to, to threaten the unity between two believers and also affect the church, men, we have to have the guts to stand in the gap, to help people, to catch them, to go, to go get our hands around them and like grab them for, for like God's sake. Come, let us like let me help you reconcile with this person. Like we ought not to participate in the kind of like banter that can go back and forth, whether you agree with one side more or not. Like we need to be the kind of people that will fight for unity more than we'll fight for a, a particular opinion. I'm not saying we don't fight for truth. I'm saying we fight for unity more and before we fight for personal preferences and opinions. So Verse 4 and 5 here. Rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Let your graciousness. Uh, other translations might say uh, gentleness. Literally what this, what this word graciousness means is, is leniency. 
and, and this is huge, okay, so don't miss this. Leniency. Let your leniency be known by everybody. Now, what does that mean? It's not leniency with others as it relates to their actions. It's leniency with yourself as it relates to your rights. Be lenient. Let your graciousness, let your leniency be known to everyone. What he's saying is let your quickness to set aside your preferences and rights for the sake of others be known by everyone. Are you lenient with your own rights? Are you quick to set them aside? Can, can we just resolve together this morning to not allow our personal rights and liberties as Americans to become the thing we're most known for fighting for? Now, I'm incredibly grateful. I, I, think, I think I said this before, and I'm really not like a super political guy, so there's nothing like behind this, but I, like I'm grateful for our country, I'm grateful for the freedoms that we have, I'm incredibly grateful for the people who have, who have fought for and sacrificed uh, for, the, for the freedoms that we're able to enjoy. Like I, I am genuinely grateful to God for all of those things. But as Christians, we have not been promised a life of ease. We've not been promised a life of comfort, and we haven't been called to have our highest ethic be the defense of our personal liberties. This is huge right now. It's huge. And I understand. I get it. It's like, though the government's infringing on this, and, and what, about, what about the Constitution and my rights and my liberties? And all this? Like, I, I understand that. I get that. I'm not saying you just roll over and get steamrolled. Like, I'm not saying any of that. But what I am saying is that we're to be known for our leniency with our personal rights for the sake of loving others with a gospel focus. Let your gentleness, let your leniency be known by all. This isn't to be just like a subtle thing. This is to be a defining mark of Christians. If anyone had a right to fight for their rights, if anyone had a right to take up an offense and fight for what they rightfully deserved, would it not have been Jesus Christ? Who Paul just said two chapters earlier, though being God himself, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant. So as Paul rounds the corner to turn the final stretch of this letter, we see this like, this, like uh, machine gun list of virtues, okay, here in, in uh, verses 8 and 9. Let's look at this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence, and if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Whatever, whatever is true. So this first one, whatever is true. Uh, Abraham Lincoln once said that everything on the internet is true. Right? Guys, pursue what is true. Don't let the, your primary diet of truth be social media and clickbait articles. It's probably not a great like, baseline of truth. It's, it, they're fun to read. It's in, man, I find myself in the comments section of things way more than I should. I don't know what it is. 
there's something entertaining about it that is probably sinful, but like pursue what is true. Pursue what is true. Don't pursue what's inflammatory. Pursue what is true. That don't mean that we'll have to get our head out of our politics and into the scriptures sometimes. Exercise discernment. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. Pursue what is true. I can't spend you know, a lot of time on all these. Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, lovely, commendable, of any moral excellence, anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. We, we talked about this, uh, I can't remember which message it was. Um, this was a few months ago when we talked about uh, dwelling on these things. Like, let your mind linger on these things. And I kind of use the example of, of, that, of that junk drawer Aldi aisle, right? Where you just kind of like linger there. Like, or maybe Menards. Men- oh man, Menards is like the linger capital of the world for me, right? It's like you go in for one thing, come out. I didn't even know I needed an air compressor, but I did. And so like, let your mind dwell on these things. Be saturated with these things. Guys, what do you dwell on? What do you find your mind lingering on? What does your mind default to when you have a spare minute? What do you daydream about? What do you look at on your phone, on your computer? What, 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 what does YouTube recommend that you watch? Because it knows what you watch and really wants to curate a list of videos that, you think would, that, that they think you would find very interesting. What, what, is, what does YouTube think that you dwell on? And what is what you allow your eyes to see and your mind to dwell on honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, morally excellent, and praiseworthy. In 2018, uh, a Covenant Eyes study said that 71% of teens hide their internet activity from their parents. 71%. That's like everybody. And that same study said that 56% of marriages have one person who has, quote, an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. 56%. That's half of this room. There are some of us in this room who last night when your wife went to bed or maybe you're single, whatever, you you looked at porn on your phone. You have in the last week. And you're not talking about it to anybody. But you're letting your eyes linger on these things. Be saturated with these things. Are the things that you watch, the things that you that you lay your eyes on. If, if your family decided instead of tonight we're watching Netflix together, we're just going to watch your entire internet history for the last week. Would you be cool with that? Would what they see come up on that screen be in this list? Honorable, pure, lovely, commendable, worthy of, of commendation, morally excellent and praiseworthy. Men, we must be men of purity. We must. Pornography has no place in the Christian life. And if you're struggling with that, 
Like bring other men into the fight. We talked about this the first week. Like we need brothers and sisters who will come alongside us and fight with us. Like there's, there's this shame that can be incredibly isolating. I was talking to a guy last week who's struggling with this very issue. And, and I've known him for a long time. And, and he, was like, he was like, man, I've been struggling with this, with this for a long time. And I was just really afraid to tell you. And there was a part of me that got kind of offended because I'm like, I don't think I've been the kind of friend that would, like, I don't know what I, what I did to like instill fear in that. I, but there is something natural in us that, that, that there is a shame there to admit to a fellow brother in Christ, hey, I've been, I've been struggling with this. And it's been for a long time and I've actually like lied about it to you, but I, I need help. There's no shame in that, men. Like, would we be a place, would we be brothers to one another where another, a fellow brother could come to us and say that and they wouldn't be received with commendation or with, with condemnation, but that we would put our arm around them and say, I will fight this battle with you. I am in this with you. Like, your purity is worth the fight. Your relationship with Christ is worth the fight. Your marriage is worth the fight. Like, would you be the wind in their sails in the same way that the Philippians were to Paul? So, verse 10. Here we go. We're getting to the end here, guys. I rejoice in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were, you were in fact, concerned about me but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little, and I know how to, how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Does this mean that you can dunk a basketball no matter what? You can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Isn't this like the, the typical, like you got the Michael Jordan, you know, like tongue out, up for a dunk. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Does this mean that you can claim this to land that big sale or to finish that big project? Uh, G. Walter Hansen uh, says this, any use of this verse to support a claim or goal of a triumphant, victorious Christian life without weakness or limitations conflicts with the immediate context and the wider teaching of Paul. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me was not Paul's life verse to avoid hardship or to claim victory in all things, to claim victory of his goals. Now what Paul is saying here is that the key to his being content in plenty and in little, in strength and in weakness, is that the source of his strength wasn't, didn't come from his circumstances but from his Savior. That the source of Paul's strength, the source of Paul's being content, didn't come from his circumstances, but came from his Savior. You see, Paul could be content in all circumstances because his main goal in life wasn't determined by the outcome of his circumstances. He could be content because his main goal, his main desire, wasn't based on the outcome of his circumstances. We see this again back in chapter 3, verse 10, where he says, my goal, so if his main goal isn't determined by his circumstances, what is his goal? What determines 
in Paul's mind, uh, success. Chapter 3, verse 10, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. When your main goal is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, that will change the way you view your circumstances. What does that mean? The power of his resurrection. The, the, the power for God to bring life from death. The power of God to bring good from bad. The power of God to bring much from little. That was Paul's main goal. Paul knew that whether you win or lose, whether you have much or little, that regardless of what it is, the primary question isn't, why did this happen to me? The primary question is, why don't I have that? Or, or why, why did this happen? Or why didn't this happen? Whatever that is, the primary question in all of our circumstances is, how does this help me know and love Christ? How does this help me value Christ more? How does this help me see Christ as my greatest treasure? When you begin to ask, how does, how does whatever the circumstance, how does this relate to me knowing and loving Christ more? That will categorically change your circumstances because now your main focus isn't on the outcome of the circumstance. Your main focus is on the outcome of how it leads you to see your greatest joy and your greatest treasure in Christ. All right, last, last portion here. Verse 14. Still you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. What's happening here is that God used the Philippian church to both meet Paul's needs and encourage his heart. That he, he used the Philippian church that in their, in their monetary giving, in their financial generosity, that it both met Paul's needs, and even when it wasn't meeting a particular need, it was encouraging his heart. It was helping him continue to go on. And here's, what's the, here's what the amazing thing is, is that Paul, even as he's on the receiving end of their generosity, he assures them that their giving to him has only served to increase the, the balance of their account, right? That's verse 17 here. Verse 17, let me find it. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. Like what Paul was most excited about their giving wasn't that he was getting what they gave but it was what they were getting as they gave, which was the joy of Christ. The reality of them to experience that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Which means for us guys, that as we cultivate the gift of generosity in our lives, we will come to see that, it's, that, that there is more joy to be had in giving than the joy that we would have had 
in keeping. The joy that we would have had in getting what we wanted. Guys, for many of us, God has provided abundantly more than what we actually need. That for some of us, this may not be true of all of us, but for some of us, there's, uh, there's more money at the end of the month than month at the end of the money. What a, what a privileged status that is. Why in the world would God bless some of us in that way? Why in the world would God give an abundance more than what we need? Why would he do that? It's so that it, it's for your joy but not in the way you think. It's not for your joy in that, well, now I can enjoy all of it for myself. No, it's for your joy in that you would be able to experience the joy of meeting others' needs and encouraging others' hearts. A, a really fun thing to do, obviously, obviously meeting a real tangible need is incredibly uh, life-giving. I would encourage all of you as, as you're able to have a line, have several lines in your budget for financial generosity. Generosity to, to your local church and generosity to your community. Kind of a slush fund, if you will. Like a, a flu, like you, so that you're able to like really tangibly meet the needs of people who are right in front of you. I would encourage you to have those lines in your budget. And here's the thing. I would encourage you to do it, even if, even if there's someone who isn't in like immediate financial need, but they just need encouraged. We've had some tremendous friends in our lives who, even though we haven't needed anything, they, they've known we've been going through a rough time or experiencing something, and they've just randomly shown up with flowers for my wife or whatever. That has encouraged our hearts. That has spurred us on in our life and in our ministry. To, as others have given to meet our needs and encourage our hearts. Paul said himself, he doesn't desire their money. He desires the joy that they get from giving. So God, guys, we're, the, the, the reality is we're merely stewards of what we have. We're stewards. It's not ours. Your money's not your money. Your stuff isn't your stuff. Isn't it interesting how it's way easier to spend someone else's money than it is your own, right? I remember I worked, a, I worked a, several summers with a, with a contractor who... Um, we, had, we, had a, we had a company card, I guess, you know, and so you'd be like, well, whatever supplies you need, just go get it. For, until I bought a house, I did not know how much paint cost. I just didn't. I never looked at the receipt, because I didn't care, because I wasn't paying for it. Doug paid for it. Like, that wasn't my thing. Like, I'll take six paint rollers, I'll take this, I'll take that. I'm just like, it, and it wasn't, you know, I wasn't trying to be like unreasonable, but it was like, I just didn't, I didn't know the cost of anything because it wasn't my money and I didn't care, right? It's so much easier to, to spend and give away what you don't see as your own. The reality is, guys, everything that we have is not our own, but it's been given to us by God to steward, to manage for the purpose of meeting the needs of others and encouraging their hearts in the gospel. Men, leverage your resources to encourage others, knowing that when you're generous, you actually get the better end of the deal.